Uh, We start our time with a scripture reading that usually has something to do with what we're looking at uh, in terms of a topic uh, from our sermon series. And tonight's scripture reading comes from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 through 7 says this, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God, to draw near, to listen, is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger, that was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Gracious God, our Father, I want to pause. I I hesitate to utter any words before you, an almighty God, one whom we should and would do well to fear. God, that we wouldn't pray many flippant words, but intentional words, words that would honor you, that would glorify you. And knowing that these words, we shouldn't just be mindful about the words that we pray, but the words that we use in committing ourselves to you. God, would you help us as we continue to think about what it looks like to make commitments, to take oaths, to make vows, to utter words in your presence. God, we thank you that you are a part of this time and this space. So help us to know the words to say as we praise you, our living God. But also help us with the words that we say outside of this time and outside of this space, that they would continue to praise you, our living God. God, would you bless this time and help us to think on this topic as we sit at the feet of Jesus tonight? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's true. I swear. Have you ever heard those words? Maybe they came out of your own mouth when you were a young child, got, your, got caught with your hand in the cookie jar, or uh, 
It's true, I swear. You watched on the latest crummy cop drama on TV. The cops stop some vandal on the streets, and he's caught in the act, trying to get out of an arrest. It's true, I swear. Scout's honor. Hand to the Bible. I swear on the grave of my dead mother, God rest her soul. Something to that effect. These are oaths people make to affirm that what is said is true. We will learn what Jesus has to say about such oaths tonight. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them to Matthew chapter 5, the gospel according to Matthew chapter 5, as we continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is located in Matthew's gospel. Jesus ascends a mountain to sit with his disciples and the crowds to teach them as both king and philosopher. Just a few passages before the one we'll look at tonight, we hear Jesus state that he did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, what we know to be the Old Testament. He did not come to do away with that. He he did not unhitch himself from the Old Testament. If anything, Jesus doubled down. He said, I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so he reinterprets the old covenant for his listeners. He offers them a great understanding, a greater understanding of righteousness than that that exceeds it exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious officials of the day. What Jesus offers them, his listeners, is a greater whole person righteousness. And he teaches his disciples how to live in six different areas that we've been looking at lately. How to deal with anger, how to deal with lust, looking at divorce, oaths, retaliation, love of enemies. This isn't a comprehensive teaching on these topics. They are illustrations for what greater righteousness demands of us, the disciples of Jesus Christ. Last week, we were blessed to hear from Derek Ewald, a pastor to our young marrieds and uh, over men's ministry. Uh, He came and taught on a biblical view of marriage and divorce in a way that, that challenges us of our understanding of what does Jesus mean in this greater righteousness. We saw that marriage is a, is a picture of the gospel, God's power to save sinners, that the husband would lay down his life for his bride the way that Jesus laid down his life for the church. We saw that divorce was a picture of not the gospel. If the gospel is God's power to save sinners, divorce shows sinners' rejection of the power of God. And it challenges us, challenges our thinking on that topic. And it's good to do so. And so now we turn our attention to the topic of oaths, of vows, of commitments, 
to figure out what would the greater righteousness that Jesus expects of his disciples, what would that have us to say? What would that have us to do? So let's look together at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus, the king philosopher, teaches us on oaths. The king philosopher teaches us on oaths. You heard that it was said. We've seen this phrase used in every passage for the past three weeks, haven't we? You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus has established a pattern for his hearers, taking their common knowledge of the old covenant and reinterpreting it in light of his greater view of righteousness. Again, he's not raising the bar to a new impossible standard. It's not what he's doing. He's reminding his audience of the true standard that has always been there, even if they never realized it. Jesus is referencing a number of verses here. It's not as cut and, cut and dry as some of the other passages we've looked at in the past couple weeks. You'll remember when we were talking about anger, Jesus references one of the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall not kill. When we talked about lust, Jesus references one of the Ten Commandments that says, you shall not commit adultery. It's not as cut and dry here. He's, he's referencing a variety of verses throughout what we know to be the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Uh, the first reference of which is Leviticus 19, verse 12, which says, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So there we see that we are not to swear oaths falsely, and, and how connected that is to the name of God. And so we do see a reference to one of the Ten Commandments. You'll remember in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. To, to, to take an oath is directly connected to the person, the name, the, the attributes of God. 
You cannot easily disconnect them in God's sight. And then there's a reference to Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. I I can't help but think of one of the most tragic vows that was ever made in the Bible. It comes to us in the the book of Judges. Um, The one who makes the vow is Jephthah. Jephthah was a judge uh, who desperately wanted victory on the battlefield for God's people. And so in that desperation, he makes a vow with God. He says, Lord, if you deliver the Ammonites into my hand in battle, I will give to you whatever comes out to greet me from my home when I make my way home as a burnt offering. Now, I don't know what Jephthah was thinking. I don't know if he thought it was a dog that would come running out to him, if it was a cat, or maybe a goat that just found its way inside the home and is is making its way out as he approaches home. I I don't know what he's thinking here. But I know what comes to pass. He does get the victory. The Lord does give the Ammonites over to Jephthah in his hand of battle, and he makes his way home. And while he's still far off, he sees his one and only daughter come running to him out of his house. Gleeful, dancing, singing, happy to see her dad come home from battle. And Jephthah is immediately heartbroken. He mourns, he rips his clothes in in just total grief because he he, he knows he has to keep his vow. He doesn't know what that's going to look like. So he tells his daughter the vow that he made. And she goes for two months up to the mountains with her friends and mourns over her virginity. And then after those two months, it tells us that Jephthah, he kept his vow. Now some think that that means he offered up his own daughter as a burnt offering. I don't believe it got that far. But what I do believe is that when he did go to Shiloh to make some type of offering of his daughter, uh, that they did stop. The, the, the priest stopped him and just merely offered her uh, as a maid servant to the temple in Shiloh, that she would serve for the remainder of her days, that she would never be wed. When she could have been a bride, she could have been a beautiful bride to somebody in that hometown of Jeph- Jephthah's. But because he made that vow, he kept that vow. And that involved other people. That's that's tragic. But we see the seriousness of taking oaths, of making vows. Because if he had not, Deuteronomy 23.21 says, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. Jesus sums up these various verses with, You have heard it said, 
you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. That is his summation of their understanding of the old covenant. And then he reinterprets it. He goes on, but I say to you, you'll remember from a couple weeks ago that that I there is emphatic. Matthew goes out of his way in his use of the Greek language to make that I stand out. Jesus is flexing his authority in the second portion of the pattern. He says, I, your king philosopher, say to you, do not take an oath at all. Do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. The king philosopher corrects misconceptions about taking oaths. The king philosopher corrects misconceptions about taking oaths. The Pharisees used all kinds of tricks to sidestep the truth. They would avoid using the holy name of God by using something related to him. Thus we hear Jesus say, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, one's own head even. Jesus shows that the true way to avoid swearing falsely is to not swear at all. Is he prohibiting us from swearing with our hand on the Bible in a court of law? Is he forbidding us from making vows on our wedding day? No. No, he's not. Not one of these passages we've reviewed in the last four weeks is Jesus' comprehensive teaching on the given topic. They are illustrations for his greater understanding of righteousness. They should challenge us. But we must understand this command regarding oaths as a good rule of thumb. It is an important principle that we would be wise to put into practice. It's worth keeping. It is better for you to not take an oath at all than to take one flippantly and falsely with no intent on keeping it. I know this to be true because of what Matthew records later about Jesus. When he's standing before the Supreme Court of his day, it's found in Matthew 26, verse 23. But Jesus remained silent. Our silent Savior stood before the Supreme Council of his day. He was silent before his accusers. But then the high priest looks at him and says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, 
from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I love it. Jesus, under oath by the living God, is completely honest about who he is. You can even look at the Apostle Paul. He does it several times in his writings and scripture. Um, I'll give you one example from Galatians. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 20, in my copy of God's Word, it's in parentheses. It says, And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. That's Paul taking an oath in Scripture to say what he is saying is the truth. Here's what I think we can learn from the teaching and model of Jesus and even Paul. Oaths should be taken seriously and rarely. Oaths should be taken very seriously and very rarely. There is a sense in which the Christian should tremble at the altar on his or her wedding day or in the witness stand of the courtroom because he or she is making a commitment that what he or she says is true before God who is truth personified. After all, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's in John 14, 6. Not only do Christians believe there is an objective truth, and we do, we know Him personally. And we represent Him in the commitments that we make. We represent Him in every commitment that we make. This is why Jesus goes on to say in verse 37, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The king philosopher simplifies our commitment-making process down to two words. Yes and no. The king philosopher simplifies our commitment-making process down to two words. Yes and no. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Let the simple affirmation or negation suffice without needing to be strengthened by oaths. Don't overcomplicate your commitments. Just say yes or no. And then do what you've said. Anything else is evil, or as can also be interpreted in the Greek, from the evil one, that is Satan. Greater whole person righteousness demands consistency regarding commitments where you can control them. I'll say that again. Greater whole person righteousness 
demands consistency regarding commitments where you can control them. And here's the thing. You can only control them with your words and your actions. You can only control your commitments with your words and your actions. Jesus is talking about true integrity. That you would live a consistent life in word and deed. And here's how that plays out in your life. Say less and mean what you say so you can keep your word to God and to others. Say less and mean what you say so you can keep your word to God and to others. James, the half-brother of Jesus, gives us some wise application in this principle in terms of how we keep our calendar. He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live to do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. I've been reminded of this truth just in the past 24 hours. Yesterday, you got an email from me saying that we were going to have hot cocoa in the courtyard. Here's what's really funny. Not even an hour later, I find out we're getting bumped from the courtyard to the corner out here outside. You may think that's not a problem. Like, we're still going to have hot cocoa. Yes, it was beyond my control, but it has caused me to pause, to take a step back, and to ask of myself, am I, am I arrogant? Am I arrogant to assume? It would be another thing entirely if I was to intentionally withhold delicious hot chocolate from you after telling you that we were going to have it. That would be very much different. That would be evil. My point is, we need to be careful with our words because they bear more weight than we realize. We make commitments way too flippantly and we don't follow through. As Christians, we bring disrepute upon the name of Jesus Christ when we are inconsistent in our word and our deed. He is faithful even when we're faithless. That's true. And praise God that's true. 
but our aim is to be like him, not unlike him. We must pursue faithfulness as God is faithful in our commitments. We must pursue faithfulness in our commitments. So I want to give you three ways you can be consistent in your commitments. Three ways you can be consistent in your commitments. The first, do not flake and flodge. Some of you are like, you just made up words. No, I did not. If you say you are going to be somewhere and do something, you need to do it. Our generation is really bad about flaking and flodging. Flaking. Flaking is when you commit to being somewhere and you don't even bother to show up. So let's, let's play this out in a hypothetical scenario. We have Jesus Loves Memphis coming up on October 24th. Let's say you register. Yeah, I'm going to be there. But it comes to day of, and your bed is extra cozy that morning. And it's a little cold. It's this fall, nice fall day. Like, man, would anybody miss me if I didn't show up? And so you just drift off back into sleep. Or you don't even bother setting the alarm the night before. That's bold. That's flaking. It's wrong. Then there's flodging. Flodging is when you commit to being somewhere and you back out at the last second. So same scenario. Let's say you're in a leadership position at Jesus Loves Memphis coming up on October 24th. And you know... There's some responsibility that's expected of you, but man, something came up on Saturday and you'd much rather do it. And so the night before, maybe it's Friday night and you're like, ah, let me see. I'm going to text Tanya, let her know I'm not going to be at Jesus Loves Memphis tomorrow. Sorry. That's flodging. And that's wrong. Now you, you don't feel as bad because at least you let somebody know beforehand. It's still wrong. Let me be clear, if you are a Christian and you do that, you bring dishonor upon the name of Jesus Christ. Do not flake and flodge. Secondly, do not fence sit forever. Do not fence sit forever. Now's the time where people are getting invited to bonfires and corn mazes, and it's so nice to be able to invite people to do things, and I, I don't want to knock that at all. But here's the thing. If you decide that you're just going to wait and see who else goes and doesn't go until you really make your decision, you're being a really crummy friend. There is something to being... Uh, something to be said for taking time to settle scheduling conflicts. I get that. But when you use it to bide your time and play the angles, you're intentionally letting down a friend. Someone who cared enough to invite you when they could have invited somebody else. They made a choice about you. Wouldn't you want to return the favor? And then finally, do not forget 
to finalize. Do not forget to finalize. Chalk it up to my bad memory. I forgot, man. Sorry. How many times have you heard that before? There comes a time when you grow up and you start scheduling appointments like an adult. Write it down. Or if you're like me, you know you will forget. And so you've got to take out your phone right then and there and and make that appointment on your calendar and set a reminder so you will know not to forget. And if any details are left hanging, try to finalize them before the day of the meeting or the event. When you do that, you show that you want to be there. You want to honor your commitment. You want to love your neighbor. Don't forget to finalize. Say less and mean what you say so you can keep your word to God and to others. Anything more is from the evil one. Anything more is from the evil one. There is a reason Satan is called the father of lies. The reason you flake and flodge and fence sit and forget is because of Satan and his influence on you. And when you do these things, you only strengthen his cause. When you are inconsistent in your word and deed, It weakens your witness for Christ. The greater whole person righteousness of the king philosopher demands that you honor your commitments from the moment they leave your lips to the moment that you hear one day your Father in heaven say to you, Well done, my good and faithful servant.